The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, let's look to the Lord again in prayer, shall we, as we begin our service or begin our message this morning. Loving Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace. Father, we thank you for your goodness in giving us the Word of God and your grace in speaking the truth of Scripture to us. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God that you have filled us with, that we might understand the things that the Spirit of God inspired these men to write, to record your mind, your will, your purposes, to, to have before us the revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning as we come before the Word of God, we would stand beneath it and we would submit ourselves to it. And Father, we thank you for all that it teaches us and all that it declares to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we go and we begin to consider the construction of the articles of the tabernacle, in particular the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, Father, we pray that your voice would teach us and we would understand what you would have us to know about the Ark of the Covenant and its purposes in pointing towards Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you again for your grace, your mercy, your abundant love for us, and we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, take your Bibles this morning to uh, Exodus 25, and we're going to read from verse 8 all the way to verse number 22 verse 8, all the way to verse 22. The Word of God says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them on its four feet, and two rings shall be on one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold and make them of hammered work at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. 
The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. What was God's purposes in the ark of the covenant? God purposed, oh sorry, God's purpose was ultimately to point to Christ. God's purposes were to overcome the great distance. You may remember that last week in our message then, I was trying to make the point rather subtly about distance. In Genesis 3, the holiness of God is so great and man's sin is so vile that distance had to be established between God and man. So God drove the man and the woman out and away from his presence and installed there two cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. In Exodus 19 and verses 10 to 15, God's holiness is still so great and unchanged And his presence on Mount Sinai had rendered the mountain holy also. And so when Israel came to Mount Sinai, distance had to be established lest they touch the mount and die, because their sin was not yet truly atoned for. The book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers powerfully describe to us God's holiness requiring a distance between God's tabernacle and the temple, and the tents of Israel, sorry. And yet we saw last week that God does relate to his people. The tabernacle is a great illustration and reminder of the wonderful truth that God relates to his people. Now here we are in Exodus 25 and verse 8, and God commands Moses to have the people build him a sanctuary that he may dwell among them. A sanctuary is a, a consecrated and separated place. God may be dwelling among them, but God is continuing to maintain his distance and his separation from them. Well, Moses receives the commands to begin building the articles of the sanctuary, and he's to build them based on the pattern or the 3D model that God had shown him on the mountain. The tabernacle is, in fact, the only building that God ever designed. He spent six days creating all of the universe, the vast, unreached ends of the universe, but he spent 40 days describing the tabernacle's construction. He wanted it to be built exactly as he described. It was a reflection of the heavenly reality. And of all the accounts of Israel's activities in the wilderness journeys, this was one of a few times that Israel did exactly as God commanded. 
And so from Exodus 25 and verse 10 onwards, God begins to describe the construction of the tabernacle to Moses. But not where we would begin. We would start with the tabernacle courtyard and the altar, the screens and the veils, etc. But God begins with the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. It is the most important of all the articles and items in the tabernacle. He starts there because it is the place where his presence dwells. It is the place where his anger is propitiated. And it is the place where he will make pronouncements and speak with Moses. He starts with the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant because it powerfully points to the necessity and the goal of Christ's coming, that God may dwell among and with his people. So I want us to see this morning those four things that the ark is for the presence of God, the ark is for the anger, for God's anger to be propitiated, and the ark is where God makes pronouncements, and the ark points us to Christ. So first of all, then, the ark is for the presence of God. That is its purpose. Notice in 25 and verse 10, God commands Moses to build an ark or a chest, the ark is an illustration of God's throne within a, gro- a throne room. God rested and dwelt above the ark between the cherubim in a gold-covered inner sanctuary similar to his heavenly throne room. The ark of the covenant was comprised of several components. There was the chest itself, there were the rings and the poles, and there was the mercy seat that rested on top of the ark. In verse 10, we're given the dimensions, and we can see there it's so many cubits by so many cubits. And a cubit is approximately 18 inches or 45 centimeters. So if you were to get out a tape measure, you could see uh, quite clearly, clearly that the ark was 114 centimeters long, 69 centimeters wide, and 69 centimeters high. And we can see also from verses 10 and 11 that it's made from hard, durable, and readily available shittim wood or acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold, meaning that those thin gold sheets that were hammered out very thin were most likely to be nailed onto the inner and the outer surfaces of the ark or the chest. It had those four rings inserted or perhaps soldered onto the four lower corners just above the feet so that it could be carried by the poles on the shoulders of the priests. Those two poles were to be inserted but never removed uh, from the rings. It was to keep anyone from accidentally touching the Ark of the Covenant itself. And just as God's presence on Mount Sinai had made the mountain itself holy, so also God's presence residing above the ark made it holy. You remember the story when David chooses to bring the ark of the covenant into the city of Jerusalem and he engages the Levites to do so and they 
in contrary to the law of the Lord and their priestly instructions in the book of Leviticus, they placed the ark on an ox cart. And as the ox cart is bringing the ark into the city, the oxen stumble. And Uzzah is there, and he, and no doubt, it, with a good motivation to prevent the ark from hitting the ground, he puts out his hand to touch it. And as Charles Spurgeon, in his great sermon on that particular text, states that Uzzah figured, Uzzah considered that his hand was more holy than the ground, and yet the ground had not sinned. And so the, all, the uh, poles and the rings are used in the carrying of the ark to prevent someone from accidentally touching the ark, because the ark because of the God's presence residing above it, the ark was holy. Importantly, we need to remember as we consider the story of the construction of the ark that the ark's chief value were in its content and its use. It was primarily storage for the two stone tables of the law. It was secondly the resting place place for the propitiatory cover or the mercy seat. And we'll see that in just a little while. I want you to notice in verses 16 and verse 21 that twice Moses is commanded to place the two tables of the testimony inside the Ark of the Covenant. Those uh, two tables documents or document the covenant that God had established with his people back in Exodus 19. And it documents the 10 words or the Decalogue, which is the 10 commandments of God as witness or testimony to the stipulations, the commands that govern the behavior of God's people. It was common in ancient Near Eastern tradition, as kings and nations would make covenants with one another, that the documents of the covenant were often placed under the feet of the idol in the, uh, the ruling king's uh, worship area, in his temple. And so the covenant was placed beneath that idol's feet. And here what we see is the covenant document is placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And knowing that God's presence rests and resides above the Ark of the Covenant, we can see the parallel. God commands, the Lord God commands the covenant to be placed beneath the place of His presence. In Exodus 25 verses 18 and 20, we can see that there is the solid gold mercy seat. The mercy seat was a solid golden slab or plate that covered the chest. The gold cherubim there were to be formed by hammering so that they were an integral part of the mercy seat. As my Bible has a italicized note there that says, of one piece. So those cherubim literally were hammered out of the ends. The important point about the cherubim is they're not the cutesy little uh, chubby winged babes that we see in Christmas cards and in artwork. Cherubim are described in Ezekiel 1 as powerful winged creatures. In Genesis 3, we see their, their function. See, what they looked like was not as important as what they did. 
In Genesis 3, they were stationed outside Eden to guard the way to the tree of life, lest men eat and live forever. Here, above the cherubim, as we see, the, the text describes that their faces were turned toward the mercy seat. So their heads are bowed, their wings are lifted up over them, behind them, and their faces are bowed toward the mercy seat. I believe what we see there is their heads bowed in reverent worship, turned away from looking onto God. Much like the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember the account there as a seraphim fly with two wings. They cover their feet with two wings and they cover their faces with two wings also. Here the cherubim are bowed in reverent worship. They're viewing the mercy seat, the the propitiatory cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And here what we can see also, uh, six times in the Old Testament, God was described as enthroned above or on the cherub. So the Ark of God was the place of God's presence to dwell. He was enthroned above and between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, and above the Ark of the Covenant containing the covenant testimony, the Ten Commandments. His presence was among them, but separated from them. His presence was inside the Holy of Holies, which itself was inside the holy place or the tabernacle tent, which was again inside the outer courtyard. He was dwelling among them, as he says in verse number eight, but separated from them. His presence was remote. Something more was needed. Something better was required for God and man to know peace and fellowship and reconciliation, to enjoy God's presence as the man and woman did in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall of man. Well, that is the ark for the presence of God. Notice, secondly, the ark was for the propitiation of God. In Exodus 19, verses 7, 8, you remember that a covenant is made between God and the people of Israel. Moses goes up the mountain, and there he meets with God, and God gives him the commands, and Moses comes down, and he sets before the people of Israel all of the Lord's commands. The people immediately state that all that he has said, we will do. And Moses then returns up to the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days, and God gives him the description of the the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and God gives him the law for the people. If you read forward, A couple of chapters into chapter 32, we see there the people are down on the plain. They have wondered what has become of this man Moses. He has been gone for so long. And they have built themselves a golden calf. I believe initially Aaron had the idea that it would be something to represent the God that they worshipped. But it became a graven image and the people fell into great sin. But one tribe stood alone. One tribe stood firm for the Lord. The tribe of Levi, who became the tribe of the priests. They, the rest of the nation, had broken the Lord's commandment right at command number one. They had broken his covenant. 
And God in Exodus 32 and verse 7 tells Moses to go down. In Exodus 32 and verse 10, God says, Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. He says, speaking to Moses, God is not irritated or annoyed at them for their sin. He was outraged and furious. His wrath had boiled over. His righteous indignation at them had boiled over. The reality is that a sinful people can never, ever keep the commands of God. They cannot keep the law. Breaking God's law arouses his anger, and his anger must be propitiated. Why is it that God's anger is aroused when we sin against him? You see, sin is a breaking of God's word. Sin is the act of defiance against God's character and God's will and God's revelation to us. God, when God gave us his word and his law, it was not just suggestions. He was revealing to us his very character as an absolutely holy God. And when we break his law, when we disobey his commands, we are defying him and daring him to act. And so God's anger is aroused and God's anger must be appeased or propitiated. Well, you notice in verse number 17 that God in recognition and preparation, this knowing what was going to happen, he commands that a mercy seat be constructed. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubit wide. Now, if you have an NASB Bible like I do, you will notice that it has a text note that says literally propitiatory, right beside where the word mercy seat is. And so this mercy seat, this solid gold plate that sits on top of the ark is given as a place where propitiation might happen. This propitiatory seat served as a cover for the contents of the ark. It also served as the place where the atoning blood was sprinkled. God's law required a death for any who broke it. God's law allowed for an innocent victim to take the guilty party's place and die on their behalf. The blood that symbolized the death of that victim was sprinkled on top of the propitiatory seat. It was sprinkled between the cherubim. And we remember again that the cherubim present The cherubim are present there at the entrance to Eden, giving witness to the judgment of God, giving guardianship that they may not get in and touch the tree of life. The cherubim serve as, if you like, guards of the throne room of God. They serve as guardians overseeing the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of of the Testimony within That blood was sprinkled above the Ten Commandments, and it it, it was a way of showing that the law's demands had all been answered in that blood. If we go to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, 
And verses 11 to 17 describe the day once every year when atonement was to be made. It's called, still today, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that day, Aaron, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, and not without blood, Aaron, with requirement for perfect obedience in how he carried out all his responsibilities on that day, could go in. And no doubt he went in in fear and trembling, terrified of an error that would result in his death. Aaron could go into the Holy of Holies, and there he must first make atonement for himself by sprinkling blood there. I'm sure I've told you before that as Aaron would go in, he had a a plate of coals, a censer full of coals. And the tradition has it that that censer would hang by a chain and he would place that chain in his mouth and the censer would hang below his face and he would have a handful of incense and he would have blood on the other hand. And as he stepped behind the veil, he would place that incense, crumble it onto the hot coals and fire and smoke would rise up in front of his face, obscuring his view, lest his eyes would see the presence of God there above the ark and he would take and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle that blood and he would sprinkle it upon the altar. He sprinkled the blood on this gold plate and there beneath the Shekinah presence of God's glory, God's wrath would be propitiated. Now, what does that word mean? Well, it simply means that God's anger is taken away. God's anger is appeased. Brian read for us in his communion message, Isaiah 53 and verse 11. I love that verse in the King James Bible. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. We know that Isaiah 53 is speaking about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the principle is the same, that in that blood... In that death of that victim, as payment for sin, God's anger is satisfied. It's taken away. You remember, Cameron was reading Isaiah 12 for us, for our scripture reading. And Isaiah 12 and verse 1 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away that you might comfort me. To propitiate the anger of God is to exhaust it, to turn it away, to appease or placate God's anger. One reason, among others, why the uh, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first in God's description of all of the articles of the covenant is that God chose to describe it because it is the place of propitiation. And of course, like the place of the presence, it points to Christ. And we'll see that in a moment. But once again, this propitiation, like the presence of God dwelling among the people, is limited. Just as God's dwelling was among them separate, was among them, but still separate and limited, so also 
this propitiation was limited. It had to be repeated every year. It had no lasting effect. Something better was desperately necessary. Something better was required that propitiation might be made once for all that God's anger would be completely removed. Well, thirdly, we can see in the text here, the ark is for the pronouncement of God. You notice in Exodus 25 and verse 22, it is there above the ark of the covenant that God will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is not only the place for God's presence to dwell and the place for God to be propitiated. It was also the place where God's pronouncements were made. God is, the Lord our God, is a communing, fellowshipping, speaking God. God is not the God of the deist that simply creates the universe and sends it spinning off into space without another thought whatsoever. God communes and speaks with his people. Moses, not yet having anything in the way of a text aside from what God was giving him and and speaking to him, Moses needed to hear God's voice to receive direction and instruction in leading and guiding the people of God, in making decisions, in knowing the mind of God. In Exodus 33 and verse 11, the Bible describes that Moses heard the physical voice of God as a man speaks with his friend. And I'm sure that Moses had to stand outside that veil before the ark, the altar of incense, and there he would speak to God through the veil, and God would respond to him, and he would hear the voice of the Lord his God, the Lord our God. But what about the rest of the people of God? They could not hear his voice. The rest of the people of God could only worship from afar. The rest of God's people could come into the courtyard, but never go into the tabernacle, the outer uh, room called the holy place. Only the priests could go into the holy place and there perform the ministry inside the holy place of the tabernacle tent. But never could they go into the holy of holies. Aaron And subsequent high priests could only go once per year into the Holy of Holies. Aaron could only go with blood and in perfect obedience, fearing for his life in the event of some sort of error in his work. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in particular was a limited and separated presence of God among them. The atonement provided on the propitiatory seat was limited and short-lived. It provided for the access of one man once per year. And I have no doubt that Aaron and subsequent high priests wasted no time in finishing their work and getting out of there. Something, someone 
so much better was required. Something so much greater was needed that we might really know what it means that God may dwell amongst us. We might know what it really means to have peace with God, that we might know and hear the voice of God speaking to us like Moses heard as a man speaks with his friend. Well, fourthly, we can see that the ark pointed to and promised Christ. Ultimately, the tabernacle and the ark could only point to Christ. In John 1 verse 14, the great verse that so answers perfectly what we see here in the Old Testament, says that the word who is with God and who is God, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it's he tented among us. Same word exactly. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The people of Israel had never seen inside the holy place, never mind the holy of holies. They'd never seen God's glory except for a few moments on top of Mount Sinai, the consuming fire of God's presence, which quickly shrouded in smoke and darkness. What was needed was for God to come out and come down to be with us. So we see that Christ was made to be God's presence among us. Christ was born truly man, truly God, two natures in one person, inextricably fastened together, kind of like the gold that was fastened to the acacia wood of the Ark of the Covenant. Christ walked among his people. He lived among them. He spoke to them and to us. In fact, his speaking the words of God was of the highest priority to him. In Mark chapter 1, after a long day of ministry and then healing and, and many people, many sick in the evening, the Bible says that Jesus got up early in the morning and went off to a lonely place by himself and was praying. And when Peter and the disciples came to get him to come back to the house to continue the work of healing and cleansing of demons, Jesus said, that he must go elsewhere because the reason he had come was to preach the gospel, to speak the words of God. We know from Hebrews 1, we saw it last Sunday, that God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. He came to speak the word of God to us. He came as God's presence among us. Christ was made, secondly, to be a propitiation, or I should say correctly, Christ was made to be the propitiation for us. Unlike Aaron, the high priest, Christ needed to offer no blood for his own sin. He had none. He had been examined and seen by friend and enemy alike. None could find any sin in him. The Bible tells us, in the words of Peter on Pentecost morning sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23, that God displayed Christ to us with miracles and wonders and signs. He displayed him as his man approved by him. 
The next verse, the Bible describes that God delivered Christ over by his predetermined plan and foreknowledge into the hands of sinful men. They took him and they tried him and they mocked him and they scourged him and finally they crucified him, spiking him to a cross. But the Bible also says in Romans 3.25 that God himself publicly put Christ forward. He displayed him as the propitiation in his blood. In other words, it was God who put Christ forward as his provided sacrifice to appease his own anger. And in Romans 1, 4, we praise God for this verse. God raised Christ from the dead, declaring and proving that Christ is the Son of God with power. And by faith this morning, trusting in God, the accepted sacrifice of Christ becomes our sacrifice for our sin. How? How is that possible? While we come to God by faith, trusting Him to accept us, as we come, we admit that we have sinned against Him. Every disobedience to God's Word, every moment of failure to love and glorify God the way that we were designed to. We seek God's forgiveness based on Christ's death. We ask for Christ's death to be the payment for our sin, for my sin. And we trust God to make that transaction. The moment of that unbelief, God sends the Spirit of His Son to seal us as belonging to God, to dwell within us in the tabernacle, not of curtains and gold and boards, but in the tabernacle of our own hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 tell us that. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God now dwells with us, in us, and His Holy Spirit empowers us to live that life that God calls us to live and to work not merely as redeemed people, but as living, active priests amongst His people. Christ came. He was made to be the presence of God. He was made to be the propitiation for us. He was thirdly made to be peace. Christ made peace for us. One of the apparent frustrations of the old sacrificial system is its unending, never lasting, never satisfactory nature. The priest could offer sacrifices 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for an entire lifetime. But never once was there truly the accomplishment of peace. All those sacrifices did was point to Christ. The wonderful truth of the gospel is that Christ having died once for all, for all my sin, past, present, and future, he has established lasting, eternal peace, reconciling us to God. The Bible says, having been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God. Jesus coming into the upper room where his disciples were gathered after his resurrection, one of the first things that he pronounces to them is peace. There is peace. And fourthly, Christ made us priests to God. In the Old Testament tabernacle, God intended that the whole nation would be priests. But because of their sin with the golden calf breaking God's law, only the Levitical tribe could serve as priests. They alone had stood for God. But Christ has kept all the demands of the law for us. Christ has made a new covenant with us. Sorry, made a new covenant in his blood, sealing us to God. God is our God and we are his people. He has made us to be kings and priests to our God. We will reign with him as kings and we are now to work as priests to God. In 1 Peter 2.5, the word of God says that Christ has made us to be holy priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ our Lord. The sacrifices of praise and worship to God. The spiritual sacrifices of prayer and ministry of the word to each other and to those around us. To intercede with each other and for each other in prayer. To speak God's word to those we gather with and to those outside the faith. The spiritual sacrifices that we offer as priests is a life that's given wholly over to God to serve Him, to honor Him. Whatever your regular vocation may be, to serve and honor and glorify the Lord in all that you do. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter tells us that we are citizens of a holy nation. Just as surely as those Israelites were citizens of the nation of Israel, so we are citizens in God's kingdom. And Christ is our king. We are also included in a chosen race, he says in the same verse. That race, it's not defined by color or genetics. It's defined by Christ's blood. Those who have the blood of Christ applied to them to wash their conscience clean. Those who have accepted, I should better say, those who have received the gift of God's grace by faith are now included in that holy nation, that chosen race. We are, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10, a people included who belong to God for his own possession. That's covenant language. I will be their God and they will be my people. We belong to God by covenant. And we do so for a purpose, to proclaim his excellencies. All those things were purchased by Christ. All those things were accomplished because Christ was present amongst us. Christ made propitiation for us. Christ purchased peace for us and Christ has made us priests to God. So what do we do with all this? We ask the beginning, what are the purposes of God in regards to the Ark of of the Covenant and in relation to Christ. We could sum it up like this. God purposed to dwell amongst his people, Exodus 25 and verse 8, but Christ now dwells by faith in our very hearts, in the tabernacle of our hearts.
God purposed in the Ark of the Covenant and the propitiatory seat to have his own anger justly removed and resolved. And Christ's death has satisfied all the demands of God's law. It has removed the anger of God. As Isaiah 12 and verse 1 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. What a comfort it is to have Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. What a comfort it is to be able to give thanks, to offer the praises of thanksgiving and worship to God. God purposed to meet with us and speak to us. We see that in Exodus uh, 25 and verse 22. And Christ dwells in our hearts. He speaks the word of God to us. God has given us his Holy Spirit to illumine and explain the word of God that he inspired to be written. And God purposed to make his people a nation of kings and priests. And Christ's life and death has saved us. Christ's blood has cleansed us. Christ has made us to be kings and priests to God, to live life as forgiven, cleansed, declared righteous men and women. He's done this to, so that we might live life offering God praise and worship, to live life joyfully giving thanks, to joyfully as Isaiah 12 talks about, draw water from the springs of salvation to live life praying with and for one another, to live life preaching the gospel in words and deeds to others inside and outside the church. God has made us his people, a kingdom of priests and kings to live life preaching the gospel, to live life dwelling in the presence of God. God purposed that he might dwell amongst us, and in Christ he has accomplished that purpose. The Ark of the Covenant was built and constructed to help us see through an object lesson all that Christ was going to come and do and fulfill. We live life dwelling in the presence of the living God who is not angry with us anymore. What a great salvation. What a great Savior we have in the Lord Jesus this morning. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to sing one more hymn. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. Loving Father, we thank you. We praise you again, O God, for your word. We thank you, O God, that Christ has come and dwelt amongst us walked amongst us, taught us the word of God. And Father, we thank you that he has come and you have delivered him over into the hands of wicked and sinful men who nailed him to a cross. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, that no man took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. Father, we praise you and we thank you that he has been raised again. Father, we thank you we praise you. We give thanks with joy, O oh God, that he has made us a kingdom of priests and kings to you. Father, we thank you for the priestly ministry that you have given to each of us to exercise, to, to declare the excellencies of Christ to one another and to the unsaved world. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O oh God, that you would do a work to save those around us, to save some who are listening to this message. 
Father, we ask you for your blessing and we ask you for your help and we give thanks. We give thanks, O oh God, that though you were angry with us, you are not angry anymore and you comfort us. What a joy it is, O oh God. And we pray these things and give thanks in the precious and the powerful and the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.